Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Jonathan Pritchett, and today I have Dr. Kevin Lewis, a mentor, a colleague, and a friend. Dr. Lewis, tell them who you are and what you do. Hey, uh, Jonathan, thanks for having me on. Uh, Kevin Lewis, uh, professor of theology and law in the Christian Apologetics and Science and Religion programs at Biola University, uh, Talbot School of Theology. Uh, again, what do I do? I do lots of stuff. Uh, so I was just telling uh, Jonathan before the uh, broadcast here, first and foremost, my love is Bible and systematic theology. But then following Titus 1.9, I think it's important that every single minister uh, be able to, uh, again, be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict, because heaven and hell are basically depend on truth versus lies. Mm -hmm. And if we don't love the truth and we don't refute the lies, uh, then people are lost. So I put a great, great uh, uh, emphasis on not only positively presenting the truth well, because I think that's the best, the best apologetic is to explain the faith well. That's number Amen. one. And defend it. Yeah. And then B, if you show that the other views are false, by default, people are left with a clear choice. And then the only question is, is that, do you want it? Yeah. So, so that's the, th those are the issues. And so anyway, after that, I have specialty areas in, uh, uh, as we're talking about today, demonology and the occult. I have a degree in world religions. Uh, I teach in the area of, uh, uh, again, uh, American religious cults, demonology, world religions. I have a law degree. I'm a practicing attorney doing religious liberty law, constitutional law. I teach courses on that, integrative courses here. So as I, as I tell people, it all starts out well, the Bible and theology, and then it's heretics, cultists, demons, and lawyers. Kind yes. of goes downhill from there. Downhill from there, yes, and, and not in that order, because lawyers, we could maybe bump up a, a few notches. Maybe, yeah. I don't know, we'll, yeah. uh, we'll see. So yeah. You're that's what I do. Yeah, so uh, this, on a personal note, you are the unsung hero in my book of the apologetics program at Biola. I, it was a pleasure to have you for a full 33% of my program. I made sure of that by, by strategically picking my electives. So that, and it wasn't because you were an easy grader, because uh, you weren't. But I, I think I, I learned more from you than I did from any other two professors there combined. And that's not a knock from them. It's just um, the wealth of information that came out of your mouth is impressive or at least it was when I was a student. We'll see if it's impressive today. Well, but Thanks for that, brother. Yeah. And, and, and right back at you too. I'll tell you, I I lost count a while back, but I, I've been teaching since 1992 at Biola. And I think I have somewhere about 8,000, 8,500 ex-students. Wow. And I, yeah, so that almost all of them are in ministry somewhere now doing something. But I can tell you, you're People don't understand. People say, well, was I a good student or something like that? I'll tell you, there are very few people that, A, are intelligent, but also important, they got a fire in their belly, and they understand that heaven and hell are at stake. And that's something I always appreciate about you, Jonathan, is that, see, when I see people who will actually aren't afraid and they've got the courage and boldness and tenacity to poke at tradition and poke mm -hmm. at uh, what people say that I'll tell you, I wish everybody had that, but a lot of people just go along for the ride. So 
Jonathan, thanks for being you, brother. Yeah, it's it's a lot of <laughs> yeah. fun to be me. It really is. I think everyone should get a turn. Yeah. But yeah. evangelism is at the heart of everything that I've tried to do, whether I was doing evangelism uh, with churches or through music ministries or just even in academia. I, I want evangelism. That's, that's the main thing. And of course, if you have to understand your belief system. The 21st century apologetics is pretty important component of evangelism. And so I found apologetics helpful when you're evangelizing for those of us who still like to try to do personal evangelism with people. Uh, you'll, you'll encounter uh, moments where you have to defend not the existence of God, which uh, something I, I want to talk to you about here in a minute, but, yeah. but objections to Christian doctrine, I encounter far more than atheism or you know skepticism or those kinds of things you find objections to the trinity you find objections to the deity of christ you find objections to the reliability of the scriptures um and the truthfulness of the scriptures you find objections to the doctrines of hell um all that stuff in apologetics whether it's you know any of the books that we read or the conferences that we go to you you will find that atheism and their criticisms occupy probably 85% of the, of the apologetic effort in, in evangelical Christianity right now, when they're 5% of, uh, or less of the population of the people you're likely to encounter. But when you talk to real people, instead of online atheists who get on YouTube comments and type gibberish, um, it's, they're, they're not. They're, they're actually, I think, more lost people are just uh, run-of-the-mill pagans, and their objections to Christianity are doctrinal related. So that's been my experience. I, I don't I, I don't speak for everyone, but, but that's my experience between apologetics in apologetic circles versus what you really need to t- defend when you're talking to people on the street. Yeah, I, uh, I, yeah, I'm not sure of the percentages, but I'd say, yeah, I think there's a uh, way too much emphasis put on atheism, uh, even though you, you might make a case that because technically that's what's re- controlling, at least to a degree, the sciences and a good portion of the, uh, of the culture, it's not what's on everybody's mind. What's on, uh, what, you, what you said is correct. The fact is you just have a lot of people who make up their own theology. Yeah. Uh, they have a false view of what Christianity is about, frankly, because it's not explained well. It's not lived well. Uh, yeah, there are a bunch of hypocrites. And so people just say, you know what, it doesn't work for you. So why should I consider it for me? Right. So that's why life consistency is important. And at the same time, consistency is, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm saved, but that doesn't mean I'm perfected. And that's something we need to communicate. So yeah, fortunately, we've got, we've got, you know, polytheism, paganism, you know, Wiccaism, we've got Satanism, we've got uh, false views of monotheism, we've got kind of phony therapeutic deism, Islam, you name it. I mean, there's lots of things that people believe that have nothing to do with atheism, and that's the right. vast majority of the world. Right. And 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 you you come across this when you actually bother to do evangelism. And that's what we wanted to talk yeah. about today is de- demons and the occult. And since you are a professor of systematic theology, I have found um, just a huge gap in the literature when it comes to theology of angiology and demonology. 
uh, in the systematic text, they typically are the shorter, if they're not shoehorned under a subsection of the doctrine of God, if it's, if it gets its own chapter, it's a short one. Uh, and the books on this is either sensationalized nonsense, uh, that, that you get from popular writers, uh, or just very, very few, uh, you know, um, uh, well, Clinton Arnold at Biola has published on this. Um, Rob Bowman, I think, put uh, Sense and Nonsense in his book about angels. But there's very few books out there that, that, that tackle the subject of angel, uh, angelology and demonology. And you're the guy for this. Uh, you talk about demons and the occult. And so before we get into that, I do want to ask, why, why, the, why are people hesitant to talk about angels and demons and, and occult-like practices and things like that. What's the, what's the apprehension among Christians about getting into this subject? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, after teaching in this area for over 30 years, I could say that probably on two levels, uh, on the, at the church level, there's just a lot of people that they want to go and they're, they say technically, I guess they want to learn how to live their life well. And they're not really thinking about angels and demons at all. They want to, you know, they, they want their next how-to right. sermon. And they're not really interested in sort of the, the, the whole counsel of God and understanding re at reality as it is. In fact, that's, we think about truth in a way of correspondence theory of truth. It means truth is a property of propositions that correspond to reality. Or if our ideas correspond to a mind-independent world, then they're true. And the point is, is what the Bible describes is the way the world really is. And that's why we want to know it well, which includes the unseen world and the seen world in the sense of physical and spiritual. Now, why people are not interested, one, because a lot of people just, uh, they think it's, it's not practical for them. Uh, others is that it's not, you know, they follow whatever their church or pastor says, and, and churches and pastors don't emphasize it. Um, of course, you get to the, depends on which church. So you go into the Pentecostal charismatic uh, wing of the church, and there's a great emphasis on, I mean, there's different areas on why they put more emphasis on demons and spiritual warfare than, you know, than sort of non-Pentecostals and charismatic. Some, sure. some will see it as uh, they, they wrongly, in some cases, uh, give Satan too much authority in the world. So they see it as a conflict of kingdoms and a confrontation of kingdoms, which yeah. there is a sense where it's true because Satan is the God of this world. He does, he and demons do have a great degree of control, but you could lock up Satan and all the demons and guess what? All the sinful human beings on earth would still produce pretty much right. the same amount of evil. So, right. but I think at the, at the lay level, they think it's practicality. Uh, there is more in the Pentecostal charismatic churches because they see this as kingdom conflict. They also see, you know, and properly too, yeah, the demons tempt, Satan tempts. So it's something that everybody needs to be concerned about. But then when you get into other areas of Christian theology where if you're dealing with, uh, you know, certain people who have certain kinds of eschatology, certain preterists, well, Satan's already locked up. There are no demons that we're encountering. Right. So there's zero emphasis on it. Uh, if you get into the scholastic world on it, I think that a lot of people, they're more interested in 
whatever the quote unquote big contemporary issues are. So you go to evangelical theological society meetings, there's always somebody who published a book that 5,000 people want to respond to. Um, so there aren't a lot of big stuff on angels and demons. Yeah, you get uh, uh, Michael Heiser books, and that's about all that's being talked about is, you know, yeah. his, his books on this. But there, I, you get the sense that the Catholic Church has had a, a branch of it that deals with demon possession and all of that for, for centuries. They, they, they get in that. Dallas Willard once talked about how in some of these charismatic, and these are my people, so I'm not picking on, you know, them versus me. I mean, charismatics, yay, hooray for that. But um, in charismatic churches, you have what Dallas Willard says, they're, they're trying to cast demons out of every flat tire that they have, you know? And so you, you've got, you've got those things too. And I wonder if that, that, that line for a lot of Christians between the supernatural world and the superstitious. So yeah. can you unpack that that sure. us. How, how do we think rightly about the supernatural without falling yeah. into the superstitious? Well, obviously you watch uh, Netflix, go to Sam and Dean, watch Supernatural. They'll tell you <laughs> everything you need to know about the supernatural world. <laughs> yeah. you know, go buy a 67 Impala, you know, drive it around and take your You have business. to admit, you love that yeah. show, don't you? Horrible theology, but I like the show. <laughs> yeah, I so uh, I, I could say I, I slap my head with the theology, but you we know. all have our guilty pleasures, man. Yeah. So anyway, on this, it's, it's, it's actually quite simple. It's just, this is why 30 plus years ago, I said, look, I'm just going to study in depth biblical angelology and demonology. And so this is where, you know, uh, and when I study it, I just, I, I really, I'm not really interested in the church history behind it. I want to know what the Bible says about the unseen world and the way that it affects our world. So. That's why, even though, uh, you know, and I actually haven't read uh, Michael Heiser's books on that. I've had several people show me portions of it and ask me questions about it. So I'm not, um, but supposedly there's, you know, these, these council of the gods ideas. And uh, um, again, I'm more a traditionalist on that. I think the, 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 the Elohim there or simply there, it's what the root of the word is or powerful beings. You've got two creation accounts in the sense that you see a creation of angels in Psalm 148, 4 and 5. God commanded and they were created, and you had the creation account for human beings. There might be other spiritual beings and creatures out there. I don't know, but I think all the evidence points to at least that God made two kinds that we have any interactions with, and yeah. they certainly have different functions. So this is why when I look at biblical angelology and demonology, uh, like I said, I just go through it start to finish and just say, look, what God did is he created at least two kinds of morally responsible, free, rational creatures. And uh, those were one class that they call angels, another class they call humans. And then with the angels, again, once you bring something into existence, I think you can make the case that because it begins to exist, it's limited, it's mutable, it's contingent. It's all those things. So what do you got? You've got limited, contingent, mutable, you know, persons that have a moral capacity and ability to obey or disobey. So what you've got ultimately with a class of angels are created, limited, rational substances, hence persons, 
that in their normal state don't, don't have physical bodies, yet they are substances, they, they have causal abilities, and uh, they can interact with each other, they interact with us, and they can interact with the physical world. So from there, at the same time, mutability, uh, that's the important part with uh, limitation and mutability. What you've got with creatures, rational creatures, is limitation and mutability of mind. So limitation and mutability of mind means is that we can constantly change our mind. We grow in our information all the time. And then at one moment, you can value a proposition or idea as true. And the next moment, identify the same proposition as false. And that's what creates appetites and inclinations in people. So the fact is, is that God created us to have relationships with him to arguably mirror the intertrinitarian blessedness and fellowship. And then at some point, because of limitations and mutability, people change their mind. They don't want it. They experience consequences, both for human beings and for angels. And then we see with the nature of unrighteousness and sin, they're just certain harms um, and pain and all sorts of things that sin causes, both in the angelic realm and in the, uh, in the physical realm. So, so all that to say is when you paint a picture biblically of what's going on, Essentially, what you've got are a myriad of angels and arguably whatever the number is, whether you can take the Revelation passages where the, you know, the dragon sweeps a third of the stars, is a third of the angels fall with the devil. Um, either way, there seem to be a lot of fallen angels and there's a lot of elect angels. And they think, they choose. And then, you just, and then what I do is I go through in my classes on this, I just go through every angel and demon passage in the Bible and look at what effects can angels and demons produce in the world. And I open it up too, because I actually think, even though there's other theories out there, I think uh, demons are fallen angels. I don't think they're the offspring of Nephilim or, or things right. like that. But uh, I, I, and because they have an angel nature, the fact is they can do what an angel can do. So, and I, I look at that the same way as, you know, what's the difference between Adam and Eve after the fall and before the fall? What's the difference between a Christian before and after regeneration? The fact is they still have a human nature with human abilities. The only difference is going to be who they love and what they, you know, what they are working towards. So that's how I start my approach to looking at angelology and demonology. Now, it's, it would seem like the, when we talk about the Bible represents reality, uh, and describes reality as it is. The Bible seems to have a have positive data for the core, uh, the purchase of divination and witchcraft and sorcery, and, and seems to, in various passages, affirm its reality. Uh, okay. Whether you can go back to Moses in Pharaoh's court dealing with yeah. their magician, just on through there's there's. There, there seems to be a reality there. Um, okay. So when there's all kinds of stories in the world about occult practices, not Wicca seems to be a prominent one, but there are, there are, there's, well, there's two kinds of Satanists, the kind that are atheists that just use Satan as a symbol, but there are real Satanists. But yeah. all of these people seem to think that there is some, whether they, they want to explain it in natural terms or not, some sort of supernatural phenomenon that seems 
to me, dependent upon the reality of the Christian faith, though it's in opposition to it. But there's a sense in which you can, the Bible gives us a means to explain. Not every, every claim of supernatural activity is obviously, you know, true. Not every potion works, not every spell cast does anything other than breathe hot air into the atmosphere. But, but, for, but Christianity can still account for any that are true, correct? Yeah, that, no, that's a great question because that's sort of the first thing is does the Bible actually acknowledge sort of the, the reality of uh, quote unquote magic and this and that? And I, I would qualifiedly, I, my answer is, oh, absolutely, yes. The question is, is what, it, what powers it? Right. See, and, this is, and this is why, like I said, what I, when I approach this, because the, the whole point that I do of studying angels and demons is first and foremost is to, to properly in a biblical way do spiritual warfare, deliverance, and things like that, to properly identify cases where people really are influenced by the demonic, and then be able to deal with it as a Christian uh, and as someone who does that. So, but when you get to, see, and that's the thing is, is it real? I don't think there's any reason not to believe, because when you look at the Bible, that's where I start with, and I ask, what effects can this angelic class of being do in the world? There's just tons. I mean, you think about this, what demons do, they plan ideas. I mean, think about this, they're persons, they know things, they can communicate, and all through the scriptures, and I'll give you my website later, people can download my handouts on this, but you've got demons that are causing sickness in people, You've got demons that are, uh, again, giving people supernatural strength to break chains. Uh, you've got all sorts of things going on. And, even if, and then if you import other things like angelic works, you know, given assuming demons are fallen angels, I mean, you look at what's going on in the book of Acts, just that alone, the amount of angel you know, activity that's going on. Um, angels are big with jailbreaks in the book of Acts, but, you know, you, you see chains coming off, you know, Peter, you see iron gates opening up by themselves. You see all sorts of things going on through the unseen realm of angels and, you know, spiritual persons that are created causing things in the physical world. Yeah. Now, when you think about the reality of it, now, if demons Again, all of this is in, the, this is why I do a whole course on this, because you kind of, as you know, doing theology, you got to start with God, God's works, and kind of spiral into the context. But this is all within God's creation, our freedom, providence, and how all this works. But the fact is, if demons are given permission to do something that they have an ability to do, then they can, the fact is, they can produce an effect in the world and then lie about its origins. Hey, oh, you have magic, or you tapped sure. into the right this. And that's what some people in the biz who write books on uh, the occult from a Christian, they might make a distinction of what they call real versus true. So in the sense that, okay, I saw an object levitating by itself. Did it really happen? Yes. But then again, ah, but I used my Jedi powers to make it you know, <laughs> levitate. No, you didn't, you know, because that gets into worldview things and the idea of substances and so I would make the case that only three kinds of substances exist in a biblical worldview. You have an infinite spiritual substance, which is God. Yeah. You have limited physical substance, which we limit to protons, neutrons, electrons, quarks, wavicles, or whatever the smart, smallest particles that have a corporeal 
or your circumscriptive presence in the world. In other words, you can draw a circle around it. And then you have limited spiritual substance that exists. But in a biblical worldview, there doesn't seem to be anywhere in the Bible where it describes a non-physical, non-personal substance that supposedly people tap into for right. magic or the force or something like right. that. Right. And that's, that, that's, that's when we talk about Wiccans and how they, they, Wiccans will say that they don't believe any sort of monotheistic God and their language about gods and goddesses is, is flexible and jello really. Um, but, you know, outside of watching shows like Charmed or whatever, there, there, there are people out in the world who buy into this and whether or not what they're doing actually takes effect into the cosmos. If it does, you would say that this, that would be demonic activity, the power, even if they're lying about the source, that's what you're saying. Well, that's exactly right. I would say because, again, in a Christian worldview, the only thing that's going to energize that from a non-believer is going to be the, a demonic source. There's going yeah. to be a, a, a personal, evil, you know, selfish, you know, spiritual being who can produce a certain kind of effect. That's why in counseling, someone tells me a story, you know, and they, and they describe certain effects or events that they experience. The first thing I run through is my grid of the causal powers of the angelic class, angels and demons, and then say, is this even possible? After it's possible, yeah, I'm going to go as I put on my, uh, you know, my cross-examination hat and uh, work through and see whether I have a credible witness. And then at least even if they believe what they're saying, but even people can be in a position where they think they're observing something, they're not really in a place to observe it. So that's why... Even though I, I, I believe demons are active, they cause things, demons are always my last explanation for something. You know, because, so that's number one. But, but the idea of the reality of it, I, yeah, I'm convinced you've got, quote unquote, magical practitioners all through history, all throughout the world. Just read the Old Testament, and the New Testament. Yeah. The, and what's, what's important, we use the word paganism. Remember, paganism equals the old polytheism, magical worldview polytheism. Yeah. That was the, predom the predominant religion in the world. I mean, you look in the Old Testament, the Canaanites, the Philistines, you name it, they were all magical polytheists. You look at the New Testament, the Greeks, the Romans, you name it, the Temple of Artemis in the Book of Acts, they're all magical polytheists. Mm -hmm. Basically, you had biblical monotheism versus a bunch of magical polytheists. Right. And so where we get the word pagan from, it's actually, it's a... Uh, uh, even the word pagan technically is a Christian term, just like the word occult is a Christian term, uh, because when Christianity won, so to speak, at the end of the day with Constantine, and Christianity is now the predominant and even at some point the exclusive religion in the Roman Empire and other cultures, where do the people, and because why? Because we don't want people openly interacting with demons in our culture. It brings negative results. We don't want our kids being, you know, led into, you know, being, you know, interacting with demons. So the people who want to practice their polytheistic magical ways either have to do it in secret, hence the word occultus, the hidden mm -hmm. secret stuff, or the Latin word pagan simply means rural or rural people. They had to leave civilization at its core and form their, their magical communities on the outskirts of civilization. So now they're known as the pagans. <laughs> yeah, and this is an important point, really, 
to drive home for those in, in, interested in apologetics, whether you're talking to people that are into the occult or witchcraft or anything, or you're talking to atheists who want to pick on Christianity for having, you know, supernatural, superstitious almost in their terms, things that as Christian apologists with either we say, well, you don't believe in, you know, witchcraft and all that other stuff. And I'm like, well, there's a sense that I do. It's like, do you, you don't believe in those, the, the existence of those false gods? Well, in a sense, I do. The, I, I believe that their, their ideas have root in sin and possibly demonic activity. Does, does it mean that, I, do I believe that they have ontology? No, I don't believe that other gods exist in an ontological sense. But I think that the ideas about these other gods, these false beliefs, those get spread like wildfire. So there's a sense in which, and then similarly, there's a sense in which I can tell both people in, in the occult and witchcraft and magic and atheists who are scoffing is I can say, well, whatever is true in that, in that world uh, is it's only true because it's because Christianity can account for it. So Christianity yeah. can account for, say there is somebody who thinks that they're levitating something with, and let's say that they, they actually were able to levitate something. Okay, well, that, that doesn't give the truth to your worldview. What that does is it provides confirmation for mine, and I know what's powering that worldview. And so yes. that's, that's an important point that Christians need to get, and especially those in apologetics. You don't have to run from it because our worldview can account for any that's crazy right. activity. Well, and that from everything from creation itself, why something exists rather than doesn't exist to trying to explain, you know, occult phenomenology. But that's the whole point of having good Christian theology uh, and understanding exactly what's taught. I mean, from creation ex nihilo, a self-existing, you know, infinite, eternal God, that's the only thing that accounts for reality as it is. And when you start getting into, you know, modern atheism, frankly, what you're dealing with usually is a bunch of angry skeptics. You have people who have a lot of anger at Christianity for some reason, and B, uh, they require epistemic certainty for everything except for their own beliefs. So that's why it's like, you know, I, I, you, can't, I, you can't have an argument with someone where no amount of proof is ever going to satisfy them because they're not tautologically certain. Mm. So these are people that work themselves into a corner. That's why I say, well, when you're serious about this stuff, let me know. And by the way, you can't be tautologically certain about skepticism either or your atheism. So don't expect the same level of certainty from Christianity. Right. Well, but, you know, people want Cartesian certainty for everything or it's not true, apparently. And that's nobody lives nope. that way. But that's that's skepticism. That's exactly yeah. right. So that's why I don't put put much uh, time talking to atheists unless they, unless they actually want to listen to an argument. Well, no, they'll just dismiss it. They want you to listen to them is how yeah. that normally goes. But but you've given us a history of the origin of the words paganism and occult. So what are we talking about when we talk about the occult? What what, what are we talking about? Yeah, on that. What do you throw uh, in that bucket? Wow. Okay. Well, <laughs> you know, I was gonna say if I had something to sell, I you know, I have a course, you know, for uh yeah, no, for uh on that it's simply when you talk about the hidden stuff, you could either be talking about the hidden or unseen world, which the Bible talks about saying, well, what exists in the hidden or unseen world? Well, in other words, what's not physical and, you know, in the sense without producing an effect in the physical world, you just can't see, smell, hear, or touch, 
you know, with your empirical senses, physical senses. So, so the fact is, is that what's hidden is, well, technically God's hidden in a lot of ways. Right. Uh, angels are hidden, demons are hidden, but guess what? To a degree, your soul is hidden. Uh, the, I mean, you can't smell, taste, touch, do anything with your soul. So how do you know your soul is present? Answer, you know, your, your corpse is alive, right? <laughs> your body is alive, hence there's a psychosomatic unity between, you know, this soul that is causing your body to be alive, that which produces thought. Bodies without spirits are corpses. They don't think, they don't choose, they don't feel, they're not self-aware. So that's how you know your soul's present because it produces an effect. So the same way we think about, all right, there is an unseen world. There are, there are persons in this unseen world. And the fact is, as we know biblically through revelation, they can produce certain effects. So we start with the ontology, what exists, okay? And what are their properties and qualities? And then we'll say, yeah, okay, there's a, uh, like I said, these beings that exist that are not physical. Okay, great. So then now, secondarily, when you talk about the occult, you can talk about what is classically the occult practices and phenomenology that actually occur in the physical world. So this is where you get, start with some of the creatures phenomenology, uh, where, like you said, where every culture in the world, which unfortunately is, has practiced magic polytheism and arguably interaction with the demonic, they've got all sorts of claims of gnomes and elves and this and that. Which, of course, Satan appears as an angel of light. So again, I'm, you know, yeah, my my you know, my uh, conservative Protestant, uh, you know, uh, theology. Yeah, basically, that's reducible to demons pretending. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, you know, yeah, I mean, demons could appear. It's an angel of light, or an elf, and a gnome, or you know, a a Romulan, a Klingon, <laughs> whatever it happens to be. But again, I I still hold that. Look, God doesn't say he only created angels and humans. So I think it's still possible. It's logically possible, you know, that there could really be elves and things like mm -hmm. that. I just don't see any good reason to believe that these claims that which seem to be genuine interactions with creatures are yeah. sec are third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh types of, you know, created beings that have a different origin story uh, and everything else. But is it possible? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'm, and if they are, there'll probably be some elect elves and some reprobate elves. <laughs> just like, you know, just like if Mr. Spock comes down to beams down tomorrow with a, you know, gaggle of uh, Vulcans and they all come down and mention there's no God and they just evolve from a different ocean from us. All I know is I'm just dealing with a reprobate Vulcan at that point, because that doesn't <laughs> negate, you know, the Kalam cosmological argument, sure. teleological arguments, you know, and so forth. I just, you know, then you just had, need to evangelize Mr. Spock at that point. <laughs> so, so that's why when you start talking about hidden, you could talk about sort of the hiddenness of creatures, supposedly, you know, elves and gnomes and everything else, cryptozoology. Uh, but then you get into the, the quote unquote, the hidden practices there. And again, we say hidden, that is hidden in a primarily Christian society. Yeah. Uh, so, and that mean it really comes down, the occult practices usually boil down to three basic ones. Uh, and that is uh, magic or sorcery, divination, uh, or, and then the last one, spiritism. And they really have to do with really only two things. Uh, magic and sorcery concentrate on obtaining and redirecting power. 
with power defined as the capacity of a thing to produce effects, and all effects are really reducible to motion or mutation. Uh, change in something is either moving it or uh, you're moving it you know, somewhere, or you're changing its properties. So, so power is the capacity of a thing to do that, to produce effects, and the greater the power, the greater effects you can produce. You know, I can, I, I can lift my coffee cup, but I can't lift my house up. Hence, I have limited power, right. but I have some power. So, so when you look at magic and sorcery, ultimately its source is how to obtain power and then be able to redirect it according to your will. Uh, divination, and that goes by, you could, all these things, by the way, there's a couple of dozen names and, and applications you have for these. My Again, on my website, you look at uh, theolaw.org, you can go to my downloads page and download my occult ABCs, handout, demonology, occult, all I that. will put a link to that in the description. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll give you that. But uh, see, divination is like fortune telling, clairvoyance, clairaudience. But see, the whole emphasis there is the acquisition of knowledge. So, so what you've got is with divination in some sense, I want knowledge about something that's going to be useful for me. So knowledge I, independent from God, which has got a humanity into this mess in the first place. Yeah, <laughs> knowledge independent from the normal sources by which we obtain knowledge through, you know, go uh, again, observation or deduction or innate knowledge or divine revelation or all that. But technically, usually it means forbidden ways of getting knowledge. And then the last form of spiritism is, is just what it sounds like. You're contacting a spirit, and usually for the purpose of obtaining either A or B above, either you want the spirit to do something for you, hence do an effect, uh, or you want the spirit to tell you something. You want them to give you knowledge. Mm. So those are the three basic branches of the occult as far as the practices go. Now, all of and, those, all of those, excuse me, just all of those three things sound very self-centered in their motivation as far as acquiring power, acquiring knowledge, uh, and communicating with, with spirits. All of that funny sounds very self-centered in its... That's in its... funny. <laughs> oh, sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. No, yeah. uh, that's, I just wanted to... Is there, that's just the way it strikes me. So did you want yes. to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm smiling because, yeah, that, that's actually the core of the occult. You actually go back to things like rebellion is of the sin of witchcraft. Yeah. Uh, you, you go to the Samuel passages. Well, why? Because... When you look at the core of a magical worldview, it's exactly, it's my kingdom come, my will be done, as mm. long as I can obtain enough secret power and knowledge. Wow. And that's why when you look at, for example, the Wiccan read, which is their motto or saying is, as long as you harm none, do what you will. Uh, you know, for the Church of Satan, it's do what you will, the law of Thelema. But mm. where does all that trace back to? It, it, it's actually pretty simple. You go back to Genesis 3 and the fall where uh, God says, the day you, you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. Uh, but what does the devil say? Not surely you shall die. The day you eat, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So you start unpacking that exegetically. One, the devil calls God a liar. Uh, B, the day you eat the fruit, your eyes will be open. In other words, you'll get the secret knowledge that mm. you didn't have before so that you will be, quote, no longer subordinate to God, and having to follow God, you will be your own God. You can decide for yourself. 
what you want to do because now you have the secret knowledge. Got so when, when when the the sixty five year old woman with hairy armpits out there dancing in front of her pile of sticks says, "Well, I don't harm anybody. I'm just speaking positivity in the universe." Blah blah blah. Underneath that is what I always suspected—a very self centered uh, approach to her own. It's it, it's not about positivity into the world. It's about whatever it is motivating you to want to be able to spew that stuff into my face about you, you wanting to speak positivity, but, but what's behind that and what's behind that is usually something self-centered. Well, in fact, there's a lot of, in fact, let's just back up a notch because we think about this just in the context generally of evangelism. Um, why do false religions exist at all that we have to evangelize people from? And there's, there's actually a couple of basic explanations because one, because everybody in the world has a sense of guilt and fear yes. of death. And that because of the fall, everyone is born, so you're, 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 you sin and you feel guilty. And because of that, and you know there's an afterlife innately and you fear death. Now, if you don't know the gospel, what are you going to try and do? Are you really going to contemplate? Yeah, boy, I feel guilty and I'm going to, I fear punishment in the afterlife. So I can go crazy thinking about it. Or what I can do is invent some, invent some false scenario that makes me feel better about it. Atheists and skeptics, they invent the scenario that there's no God, hence there's no law, hence there's no lawgiver, hence mm -hmm. oh, I'm not guilty because there is no law. And of course, you know, the, the fact is, is contemporary atheists, they still fear death. They're still as angry, angry when you mention God because their guilt kicks in and they still know they're accountable. Uh, and then the rest is all the false religions that by and large, I'll save you a world religions degree that I got, uh, <laughs> you know, is it, it just, whether it's Jainism, Buddhism, you know, Jivakism, Hinduism, you name it. It's, I did enough good works to make up for my bad works. And therefore I'm off the cycle of reincarnation. My flame is extinguished, you know, but, but that's how I'm going to feel better about myself is to, you know, as you know, taking my classes, saying, okay, yeah, all those green lights I went through in my car, that's going to pay for all the red lights that I run. Yeah. So, so they <laughs> delude themselves into thinking that doing what they were supposed to do in the first place is going to save them in the end, but it sure makes them feel better. And occultism and paganism, got to remember in a world where Christianity hasn't reached it yet, got to remember what pe all people are dealing with are the effects of the fall is that they don't feel loved, they don't feel empowered, part of something important, they fear death, you know, they, 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 they're shameful, they're all these things, and they have no remedy. They'll deny that when you talk to them, but that's oh, what's yeah. under the hood. That's reality, but that's yeah. what's undergirding it. So, but, so that's why, you know, when St. Patrick is going to, you know, back to Ireland to deal with the pagans there, or, uh, you know, look at what's going on in the New, just in the New Testament, you know, when, uh, I mean, look at what, what the apostles are doing in the book of Acts. I mean, evangelizing Ephesus, the occult center of the Roman Empire at that point. Remember, these people, what they do, I mean, they, their trade was selling occultism. You know, Artemis, the great goddess, was there. And, and the Christians, they, they, but see why a lot of them, too. And they were scared to death, you know, of the demons and the effects they could produce. And that's why the epistles to the Ephesian was written, because uh, to sum it up, uh, Paul told him God is bigger than the boogeyman. Yeah. <laughs> they give him some nice veggie tales. So, you know, their livelihoods were gone. 
you know, just like you look at the slave girl with the spirit of divination, you know, that's an example of what uh, Paul talks about, Timothy, where he says, in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. You know, this uh, slave girl with the spirit of Python, who's probably connected with the Oracle of Delphi, yeah, brought her masters much, you know, much money from her fortune telling. Paul cast yeah. out the demon in her and boom, gone. Yeah, so and, now, well, and, but when you citing those verses about falling away, though, um, how many just kind of reminded me of how many in my encounters uh, are ex-fundamentalists or even ex-conservative evangelicals who fall into um, one of those three categories of uh, magic, sorcery, spiritism, or divination, you know, and whether it's the, I mean, and I'm not just talking about people who read uh, their newspaper uh, and, and talk about their astrology signs and all of this stuff. I'm talking about into the serious occult practices. Yeah. You know, I, I guess when you have a predominantly Christian or a Judeo-Christian nation like America, that's the only, that's the most likely place they'll come from. But even the Satanists throughout history have deviated from whether it's Catholicism or just whatever, uh, state churches in, in history, it, it's a it's a it's a falling away from some sort of Christian, you know, upbringing or yeah. Christian culture that was predominant. So, what's the allure? What's the what's the allure of the occult uh, under those three headings for people? Because I I think that that attracts more people than the idea of oh I'm going to go be an atheist and assume a naturalistic worldview, because whether people identify as Christian or not, overwhelmingly, most people, at least in the United States, and certainly in the world, even, overwhelmingly believe in some sort of supernatural worldview as opposed to a, a metaphysical naturalism. So what's, what's, what allures people away from the church uh, or away from Christian culture? Why is that attraction to the occult so prevalent? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And a couple of things, you're, you're dead on in the sense that True Satanism comes from Christianity. It's anti-Christianism because Satan is the figure in the Bible. So that's where you get Satanism from. And that's where, yeah, modern neo-pagans, witches, things like that, they're not Satanists. They, they, and they'll tell you that, no, we follow the, quote unquote, they claim the pre-Christian ways and all that. So first mistake in evangelism is to call a witch a Satanist or something like that. Right. Because they'll know you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, now, yeah, you're, you're still wrong, but you know, you're wrong in a different way. Okay. Yeah. So you can go in that route. But what the allure is, I mean, it's what we, I, we talked about a few minutes ago. <clears throat> it's simply rebellion and independence. If I have enough power and knowledge, I can, I can run my own life without having to submit to anyone. It would be the same way, you know, why is it, a, is there an allure to be fill in the blank, you know, Donald Trump, uh, Bezos, Soros or any other person with billions and billions of dollars, yeah. you know, because you pretty much have power. You can do almost anything you want in the world if you get enough money. So why? So that's that. I think that's the attraction. Is that when when you were saying here, you can do, you can have anything you want, if and and it's not controlled by anyone else. If you can get enough secret knowledge and power, that's very attractive to a lot of people who are not, don't understand that God exists, that we're trying to please God, we're made for God, our ultimate blessing is in God. But if you really 
have rejected that first and foremost, and you want to be your own God, then guess what? Uh, pagan, you know, magic, the magical worldview is the most attractive because it promises the most power for you yeah. to be your own God. And for somehow that's a more, in their mind, they would probably see that as a more tenable path than becoming a billionaire. You know? Well, yeah, because you can go on the internet and, you know, find <laughs> out the magical spells. But, you know, it, it actually takes a lot of work and wisdom to make a billion dollars. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so actually here, yeah. So you go and actually find out really how to do fortune telling, buy that winning lotto ticket, and it's all good. Good mm. luck with that. In fact, that's... Wait, why doesn't that work out more often, though? Wow. <laughs> they well, be see, winning. Funny you say that, because... Because uh, the fact is, nobody knows the future for real except for God. Right. Because it doesn't exist. Well, and, and only you know, God I, knows it. I, I've not been able to ses- successfully convince God to let me prove I will use the lottery money for good. Uh, <laughs> and God, yeah. I, I promise I will do nothing but good things. Uh, so that spell. No, really? <laughs> yeah, that spell <laughs> no. doesn't work. So, and, and Jesus loves yeah. me. So, uh, you know. I, I don't think that that works in any worldview, apparently, no. but um, what, what I, I, uh, I see this thing and it's, and it's, um, it's common among women. Okay. And I know there's warlocks. I know there's warlocks. I'm not being sexist. Somebody out there is going to accuse me of it, but women in particular seem to be attracted to this kind of stuff. Women seem to be more frequent, involved in in wicca than men they they outnumber uh men but there are men in wicca but i'm saying women outnumber them uh as far as divination practices we will we'd we'd count uh, astrology in that right Um, yeah astrology would be one of the practices of divination and right the the word for astrology properly is astromancy it's divination Mm -hmm. by the stars ah gotcha but it's but it's kind of into that bucket of knowledge yep so, so I see more women. I, I don't see a lot of fellas opening up palm reader shops. Okay. Uh, and I don't see, and, and, and men do frequent them, but again, I see this just in my experience. Um, but I'm sure there's data on this that more women get. So what is it that attracts women more? I'm not going to say, I don't know if significantly more or not, but at least more, uh, than men, what attracts women to this these kinds of things? Yeah, that and, and and you can you can you can answer as delicately as I tried to ask it. <laughs> yeah, I'm. Uh, first off, I, I'd probably back up a little bit and say definitely in witchcraft and Wicca, uh, at least in both males and females are witches. Yeah, uh, and but one thing, probably the most important thing to learn mm-hmm. about the world of neo-paganism, witchcraft, occultism is that pretty much everybody makes their own heretical stool, uh, stool, stew. <laughs> it's a, uh, even though you might claim it's the other thing, but they're eclectic, syncretistic. They pull from any source they want, put it in their own pot and make their own version of it. There is no mm-hmm. occult Nicene Creed. So <laughs> that's why, you know, when you talk to anyone, don't even think of imputing any belief. Let them tell you what they believe. Because as you mentioned earlier, even in witchcraft and a magical worldview, there's about Mm. seven different ways that people understand how it works. Everything from demons on the one hand to the force 
to all the way to an atheistic worldview where these people think they're just doing avant-garde science. Mm. So that's why you just, you know, you have to let them tell you what they believe. Right. Now, why, uh, as far as the, I don't know, I, I guess that, you know, why more female are interested. Probably I'd say number one is the, uh, what, at least for uh, neo-paganism and modern Wicca and, uh, you know, other types of witchcraft, you know, there's ceremonial magic, there's hermetic witchcraft, there's sigil magic, there's all sorts of things. But what gets popularized in the, in the culture is that witchcraft is basically a type of feminism and it empowers, it basically it's a way of empowering females who feel powerless. And I think mm. that's why a lot of it is the marketing that has gone on, uh, at least in modern times, especially. Uh, because if you go back to like ancient Druidism, it wasn't, you know, only the females or an emphasis on the females. It was, you know, the priest and so on and so forth. So, uh, but I think in modern times, especially uh, core corresponding with liberation theology, there's actually a whole area of liberation theology that's feminist liberation theology. And then there's a wing of that that's basically Wiccan feminist liberation theology. Mm. So, and if you well, look I've, at the, yeah, I've right. seen I've seen websites dedicated to Christianity and Wicca as being compatible. But the syncretism you were yeah, talking well, about, I mean, yeah. that's that's out there too. And and of course, I know uh, and have known churchgoers um, who have frequented fortune tellers and in, in these kind of palm reader places as well. My so, advice for them is stop it. Right. <laughs> okay. Good. So. So, so one of the reasons why I think this is more dangerous than atheism is number one, it's, I, I still think that when you put all everything into the, this bucket, uh, population wise, more people are into one of these three categories we discussed today in the occult practices of divination, uh, spiritualism, or, um, uh, more magic and sorcery. I think there's more people into that then I do think there are atheists still today. Um, but I also think it's more dangerous because it is playing with the power that the biblical worldview recognizes is, and it's an evil one. Amen, brother. And, and so what, as Christians, give us just some final thoughts on how do we need to think about this in our mind and how do we need to be aware of it and what do we need to do when we're evangelizing? You'd mentioned something before about at, letting them tell you what they believe because they have no systematic theology for occult practices. But, but what do we need to do to think about this in the proper way and, and how we need to talk about it with those who are involved in one of these three categories? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things, and I'll just, uh, you know, since we're talking about rebellion and selfishness, I'll plug my own uh, uh, website <laughs> at this point. Uh, I run a, a, a nonprofit called the Institute for Theology and Law, and one of the things that uh, I've always sort of not liked is that um, churches just do, usually do not teach their people well when it comes to theology and apologetics and things like that. So one of the goals, even though it's the Institute for Theology and Law, what I've I'm basically planning on building a studio, redoing my website and everything to put all of my courses that I teach at Biola Talbot for free on there with full notes, full everything. So you want a course in, you know, the doctrine of God, 
angelology, demonology, spiritual warfare, you'll be able to get it for free, which includes bibliology, you know, bibliographies and everything else. So I'd say first and foremost, the way to deal with this stuff is get educated, but you got to know the source to get the education. I'll, right. I'll send you some links to a lot of things, a bibliography, but the main thing is you got to want to learn about it. And, and the half the battle is getting rid of the sensational stuff, the weird stuff. People send me the weird stuff that Christians produce all the time. And I spend, you know, I've got lumps on my forehead doing this stuff yeah. all the time from reading it. Um, yeah, we don't help this very, at least in a lot of the popular literature that I mentioned at the top. We don't, not we, but the, the Christians don't help clean up our thinking about this by producing a bunch of rot. Uh, well, that's right. Sensationalized rot about it. And, you know, C.S. Lewis said it right in his preface to the screw tape letter. He says there's two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to have an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Right. And a lot of the works that are out there either completely ignore them, or they've got an excessive and unhealthy and arguably false view of their influence in the world. So once, when all is said and done, think of it this way. Okay, how to deal with the world of demons and things like that. Think of demons as basically criminals without bodies. Okay, hmm. they're they're all they're all, they're around us. Okay, and the Christians who are biting their nails. Guess what? You know, teenagers can still come throw rocks at your window. You know, if you're a Christian, you're not immune from that. You're not immune from evil human beings. Yes, we've had those teenagers you. in our churches. Yeah, years. <laughs> and the same thing too. And there's no reason to believe, too, that every single demon does the same kind of evil or is as evil as maybe some <laughs> other demons, yeah. because human beings show that there are levels of depravity. There's different kinds of evil. I, I wouldn't doubt that there is just some absolute evil demon that might even be nice in their own false form of self-pietism, thinking they've been wrong. Yeah. I mean, how many pharisaical people have we met in the church? Uh, they're the most narcissistic, you know, phony, you know, but they'll outwardly, they'll try and do good to show how good they are when they're the most hard hearted. So, but that's a form of evil. Yeah. So when, and there's, there's violent evil, there's defrauding, deceptive evil. So if you think about the various kinds of, of evil that one can produce, that's why as a, as a law professor too, I mean, studying criminology, yeah, guess what? They're crimes against person, crimes against property, economic crimes, fraud. I mean, you name it. Well, guess what? I mean, think about what a demon could do without a body. And that's pretty much what they'd be able to do. Mm. So, so that's why the one thing to do, like I said, is first and foremost, theologically study to show yourself approved and particularly study to understand what this unseen world is about. Uh, and at least start with the basics. Most people don't know much systematic theology, but don't get into speculative questions about, you know, well, maybe, you know, and again, I, I know people are, some people are trying to do good work on this. Just, just start with, there are created spirit beings who hate us and have these certain kinds of causal powers. I'll call them fallen angels, okay? Now, if you want to think they're hybrid you know, offspring, you know, they're, they're the souls or the spirits of the Nephilim that died in the flood. So be it. They're created finite spirits that are evil that interact with us and have certain causal powers. 
but I see people who get, get off on these tangents and sort of miss the mark is that the entire point of studying this stuff is to recognize basically a demonic influence or attack when it happens. And then two, to be able to deliver, deliver yourself and others from it. That's right. the reason we study this stuff. You know, not for some weird, you know, you know, hand wringing. You know, maybe I can see some interesting supernatural stuff. You know, I'll tell you. Yeah, that's that because that's that's the thing. It goes back to the Lewis quote. That could, you know, when you don't educate a church on this, I could see how somebody getting an unhealthy obsession with this, how they end up into that world and they leave Christianity behind. So you got to balance sound teaching with this if you're going to broach the subject at all, but you can't avoid the subject or people fall away into this trap too, because they'll go pursue knowledge without, uh, you know, the right sources, the right way to think about. It. So that's a very important thing that you, that, that uh, you said there. Yeah. And let me give you an analogy to think about too. I've, uh, I'll tell you, you probably have folks out there who are law enforcement that are listening or have a law enforcement background. And I'll tell you this, and because I, I have a lot of folks I know who are law enforcement, ex-law enforcement, um, and they will tell you this, that, you know, dealing with somebody like a hardened gang member is never a pleasant encounter, okay? Hmm. Even though you may have your cop badge and your cop gun, that doesn't mean you're going to enjoy the encounter or you really want to be around that kind of evil. Right. Uh, I know people that are in, in corrections that they said they didn't want to look at some, the, the most evil prisoners they have or like the heads of some of these gangs. You don't even want to look them in the eye because they'll order your family killed. So think about, again, think about demons as being gang members without bodies. You don't want an encounter with them. It's not right. going to be fun. Got it? I mean, the fact is, if you do have an encounter with it, you, you, you know who you are as a child of God, seated in the heavenlies with Christ, your identity in Christ, the authority you have as a believer. But you, you have one job to do is that to command the demon to shut up, leave, and not come back. You don't sit there and have dialogues with them. People send me stuff where, well, you know, dude, I could give you some horror stories. People have, I've, people have supposedly taped their exorcism and had these two hour long conversations with demons. And then the people who claim that, well, if I command a demon to tell the truth, they have to tell me the truth. And then they write books and pamphlets on what the demonic world is like based on what the demons told them. Yeah. Which is so, probably not the truth. Uh, even if you had the conversation, yeah, even if Satan is a, yeah. Satan's a liar and the father of lies. Mm. Got it. You shut them up, you get rid of them and you command them not to come back. Yeah, where's the scripture that says, let's suppose that that actually happened, which I, I'm always skeptical about. The, I, like I said, I acknowledge the re existence and reality of the demonic activity, but that doesn't mean I believe any individual claim except on the basis of the exactly. evidence, right? But supposing that did happen, on what biblical basis do you have that says uh, they will tell you the truth? Well, they, they'll probably, they, yeah. they, they know they can't deceive Jesus when, when Jesus is talking to him, but where's the, where's the evidence that you should believe a demon when he speaks to you? Yeah, well, the, the thing is, is a lot of them make that as a derivative from the authority we have in Christ to, to basically command demons. But even, but arguably, there's some demons that are disobedient. That's the whole point is that. And How did they become where, demons in the first place? What? That's how they became demons in the first place. Well, that's right. But see, and this is where, again, trying to understand this, uh, I put this in, a, in sort of a legal context. When you think about, again, law enforcement context, is that you know, law enforcement officers know 
most criminals are sane because if a cop tells them to stop, they stop. Why? Because they fear greater consequences. Right. Okay. The ones that don't, the irrational criminals, they, they're not being rational. Yeah. They know there's greater consequences if they get caught. So if you think about this, this is the, one of the more interesting things. Um, you start with human beings as, frankly, everyone in the world, unless you're already regenerate, redeemed in Christ, you're fallen. And you were allowed to exist and live your life in sin every day, all the time, without divine intervention. You haven't hit your eschaton yet, your personal eschaton. There's no so, you know, death for you, or now you're placed in your holding place until final judgment. Well, it's, again, the, the Bible is about human beings, and almost everything we see in the Bible about angels and demons is incidental to what's going on with a human being in a passage. But right. when we see um, the story of the angels, where we see a lot of these passages, is that the fallen angels also appear to have a certain amount of freedom as long as they follow certain rules. See, you can live your life on earth, but you go murder someone, you get locked up. Right. You commit rape, robbery, or arson, you get locked. But there's all sorts of sins you commit day and night every day, and you don't get locked up. Right. So in the demonic world, there seems to be an understanding that there are permissions. In other words, God's not going to intervene or whatever the God squad, Michael, or whatever is going to intervene, as long as de demons don't go past a certain amount of sin. And there you get into all sorts of things like, well, can they just attack people without or interact with human beings without permission? Well, what happens when the human beings give them permission? They want to talk to them with a Ouija board or something like that. That's one of the big things in the practice is they seem to want to always ask permission or require permission. All right. So now, see, the rational criminal will surrender when confronted because they know there are greater consequences. Um, the irrational criminal doesn't. And that's why, you know, uh, you know, the people come back, hey, we cast out demons, but we couldn't cast out these. And, you know, interesting thing. Well, these kind only come out by prayer and then, you know, alternative reading by prayer and fasting. Well, why? Because a rational criminal will comply with, with, with a, 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 a viable authoritative command from someone in authority because they fear greater consequences. There's, you don't need a direct application of power to restrain them because they voluntarily comply because they fear greater consequences. A criminal who doesn't, what do you have to do? Have a direct application of power to restrain them and remove them. So, so in well, other words, you have to call in the SWAT team or have to you know, jump yeah, up with the batons. But so this is why kind of this kind only come out with prayer or prayer and fasting can be, well, yeah. I have no ability as a human being with a human soul to um, uh -oh. that's imputed to me from Christ. Your audio just cut out. If you could say that again. Okay. There you go. Okay. Just kidding. Can you hear me now? I can. Okay, good. Yeah. That's probably the best part of the whole thing. So anyway, <laughs> the, uh, uh, yeah, what was I saying? Let's see, I exist, God exists. Oh, yeah, I'm having an interview. Okay, getting old here. I have yes. to spiral in. And we're talking um, about the, the authority. Yes. So it comes down to is that, so, but for, 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 I have no ability as a human being with a human soul to, to exercise power to apply something and produce the effect that a demon leaves. That's right. not my application of power. 
that would be a demon voluntarily obeying a command because they recognize authority. The direct application of power would be the Holy Spirit himself making the demon leave. But again, irrational criminals need what? They need a direct application of power for compliance. Mm -hmm. So by analogy in the spiritual world, it, it, I think you can make a case that shows that some demons are irrational, some are more rational. Uh, some obey commands, some don't. So this whole idea of thinking that it, all demons have to obey you at all times, some of them don't. Yeah, and that's and, clear from the scriptures. And just because you're claiming authority in Christ doesn't necessarily mean you have it at every given instant, especially your motivation for why you wanted to be involved in that activity in the first place. So that's right. And so that's, I, go ahead. I can claim in Jesus' name at the end of every sentence I make, and it doesn't mean that I'm doing it in Jesus' name. I could be doing it in my own. That's right. Jesus. So, so that's why I'm saying I don't. I don't think there's anywhere that says that any demon has to just by fiat tell you the truth because you command them to do something in Jesus name because you, you know, it's like, it goes back to those verses. We, we had to respond to atheists who say, well, the Bible says that you should be able to ask anything in the name of Jesus. It'll be, you know, ignoring the larger context, yeah. ignoring the fact that you would ask something that's in line with Jesus's will as opposed to not. Yeah. And so that's where I always get nervous when people talk about the authority we have in Christ and they have certain expectations of things because there is so much potential for abuse in that. Yep. And that's one of those things that could trigger someone into falling into these kinds of things and being on the unpleasant receiving end of, uh, of that's right. demonic and occult. So I'm always, you, you, you should never sign up to be an exorcist is what is yeah. I think what I'm going to get. If you find yourself in an unfortunate situation where that you better be grounded in the word of God, because that seemed to turn away Satan when Jesus was talking to him. But the, but that was, I mean, if you're just flying by the seat of your pants involved in this stuff, it's very, very dangerous. Yeah. Well, you, again, that's why I like to use law enforcement analogies for a lot yeah. of these things, because you're dealing basically with criminals and you're dealing with how to exercise authority, uh, spot it, recognize it, exercise authority. It's like, you know, when a cop follows the law, you know, and acts, you know, within their charge, within their commission, you know, again, they're acting with authority, but then they turn around, start shaking the suspect and, you know, start showing off and peacocking or whatever. Now they're not acting with authority. Right. They're acting outside their scope of authority. And that's why, you know, again, that's why you study what it really means to do spiritual warfare, you know, or, or deliverance or, you know, uh, all that stuff. Again, I'll give you the links to all these handouts. There's some very basic stuff. Yeah, you, you can always be a cop, but you may not always be exercising your authority correctly on or off duty. Well, so so. prayer and fasting is a lot more cumbersome and hard and disciplined than just speaking into an empty room and pretending you're talking to someone else. So, yeah. you know, yep. uh, there, there, well, you do it right or not yeah. at all. <laughs> there, there you go. So when we're evangelizing, uh, final thoughts on evangelizing those who are engaged in one of these three categories. You yeah. already mentioned, listen to them, let them explain their, their, their soup of a worldview, but what, what beyond that? Well, I mean, it, again, I, I encourage you, I'll send you the handout because I have a whole handout on evangelism of folks who are in evangelism mm -hmm. and spiritual warfare in this area. But so, so a summary of that would be, yeah, first and foremost, let people, you got to let people tell their story. See, if I meet someone, I'm a Wiccan, um, there's a couple of approaches or something I'll do, or I'm, someone says I'm a witch usually. 
And they're not used to having Christians who know anything about the occult. So I ask them, oh, what kind of witch are you? And then they have this, what? <laughs> I said, yeah, are you a ceremonial witch, a hermetic witch, or something like that? And all of a sudden, see, if they think they're talking with a Christian, their guard's up. So I start doing stuff to make them drop their guard. Now, if he's a to... warlock, he's not a Wiccan, right? Yeah. Well, if you just ask, you know, I'm a warlock, I'd say, well, what kind of magic do you practice? You know, ceremonial uh, magic, sigil magic, you know, hermetic magic. You know. So you get to learn a little bit about it. It's kind of like, well, I'm a Muslim. Well, are you a Sunni Muslim, a Shiite Muslim? You know, it's like, see, at some point, you give people confidence that the one you're talking to might actually know something about it, and people will drop their guard. Mm. Uh, but you don't do it, in, you know, again, in an attack way. You, keep, you, you let them explain it. Because I've actually, I've, I've talked with witches over the years, and that's, a, that's an approach, you know, I'll do. And they're, they're impressed. Oh, okay, you know something about this. Oh, yeah, okay. Hmm. And uh, then they'll, they'll, they'll go on and explain. But then I'll ask, I say, look, were you, were you born into a witchcraft family or did you convert? Now, most weren't hmm. born into a witchcraft family in the United States. And at some point they say, well, I converted or I began to practice witchcraft here and I was a fill in the blank, you know, hmm. you know. I was in the, you know, uh, the uh, hypocritical fundamentalist Baptist church of, you know, uh, <laughs> whatever, Hellville or whatever I was in. And, you know, I got tired of seeing the hypocrisy. And you can believe how common that is. Mm. Or I let them say, well, or they'll say, I, w I grew up a Baptist and this is that and I converted to Wicca. Well, why'd you convert to Wicca? And a lot of it has to do with the uh, egalitarian complementarian stuff is that because, well, I wanted to be a leader in the church and the, only the men could be the leaders, so there was no place for me in the church. And of course, whenever you know, someone tells me that, I say, okay, you know, there's no place for you in the church because you know, women can't be pastors or elders in a you know, complementarian male headship church. I said, so you're saying there's no place for the other 99.9% .9 of the men right. you know, who are not pastors and elders? I said, nope. are you serious? Yeah. And of course, then I usually get the, oh, I never thought of it that way. But I can tell you probably a third to half of the witches I've talked to were in some kind of Christian church. They wanted to be a leader. They were prevented from being empowered to be a leader. So they went into a magical worldview. Mm. A lot of it is to, so a lot of them I said, I said, well, okay, well, I'm a complementarian, but you know, good Christians disagree on this. I'll give you the names of three good egalitarian churches you want to go you know, go sign up for them. So, uh, you know, you, you can be an Orthodox Christian and an egalitarian. But so, that's where they say no, because that's not the power they were looking for in the first place. Well, it's not. But see, that's why you start dismantling and start, you know, basically spilling their dominoes. So they got nothing left. Right. Say, okay, so it really wasn't about that. It was about power. And mm -hmm. then, you know, that point I can go into you know, worldview thinking. I said, well, give me an argument of where you think this power comes from. You know, why do you think that there is a monotheistic God who's the creator of the world? And they know I'm going to Kalam arguments and Telia. There's just all the evidence points to a monotheistic creator God. Yeah, this is the one thing that I've always found when I get to these conversations is where, and part of the problem is their worldview has no internal coherence to where you can pin it down when you try to have them explain the source and origin of everything and that's where you start finding contradictions in the ideas that's where you find you know things that just don't line up and make sense to be able to provide the power for this you know and, and or the power behind it and but 
what frustrates me in my conversations is their indifference to that. They're, well, that's just the way that you're programmed to think, but that's not the way I think. It all makes sense, yeah. even if it's even if you try to rationally explain that it's it's you know self-refuting or logically contradictory or something. When when you try to figure out how this how their worldview can give a explanation, you know, a a universal history of the world and explain everything. So, what do you do at that point? Give up or? Well, that's what I've learned in my. 35 plus years as a Christian and 30 years of teaching that you just be a good listener and be a friend first, because, uh, you know, if they see that you really care about them, no matter what, they'll be more apt to listen to your arguments. But there are a lot of these people have come out of Christianity, they're hurt. And you're, you're, see, if you're just arguing with them, you're just another one of those bad people. When the fact is, you know, your training, my training, we could probably explain the faith to them in a way they never understood it before. Right. Because we've got the training, but we've got to get them to a place where they want to listen. And and, yeah. and that's some of the, the hardest part where like, you know, I you can go preach all because I, I give you this example and you know this. Uh, you know, I've, I've been a pastor and preach at churches. How many people go to church? have been going to church for 30, 40 years. They nod their head at every sermon. And you know what? It's blocked going in one ear. doesn't even get through to the peanut between their ears, <laughs> you know. They're never pro. They're just nodding a lot, right. or maybe it's flowing through, and they're nodding a lot, but they're not really thinking about it and making choices about how important it is uh, and everything else. And that's why you have people that they've been in there thirty, forty years, they never change because mm -hmm. they never actually are forced to make a choice to choose this day whom you will serve, decide whether or not this is true or false, whether this is important or not. Yeah, it, it, in fact, I'd say. We do talk about doing apologetics. Um, yeah, I, I'd say the pagan, neo-pagan, <coughs> witchcraft, occult worldview is far more significant than an atheist worldview in some ways. But the fact that atheism controls a lot of academia, you could say there's an emphasis there in one way. But the reality is, I think our, our, our greatest apologetic needs to be towards the, the self-professed believing church which if you ask how many of them actually do evangelism and uh, actually, you know, they say they believe in the lostness of, of their fellow human beings, the uniqueness of Christ for salvation. And when was the last time you talked to someone about Christ? Because what you really are is a functional universalist and pluralist mm. in the church. I think that is our biggest problem that we have in the self-professed church is we have to challenge this functional universalism and religious pluralism because they really do think people, good people are okay. You know, if they try to be good. Yeah. They really so, don't believe in the uniqueness of Christ or the lostness of human beings. Well, they'll nod to that doctrinal statement, but it, you're, you're talking about functionalizing in practice. They seem to if you really believe it, you'll act on it. Right. If I, if I know I'm walking toward the edge of a cliff, I'm going to turn around. If I know my foot's on fire, I'm going to put it out. That, yeah. So you can say you believe anything, but your, your, your actions, a good tree will produce good fruit. Yes. Well, somebody smart said that in this holy book that I read once. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know what you're saying, man. Yeah. So, well, Jesus seems to think that that's a winning formula. So I, I'm going to agree with Jesus. And it's always good when Christians agree with Jesus. And, yeah, I agree. And, yeah. And so, so I'm going to plagiarize Jesus's words at this there, point. There you go. Right. Well, you can't go wrong there. Uh, 
so for me, it seems like in, in apologetics, you, the takeaway we need to be act like we are actually Christian about this. We need to be educated about this. When we witness to people, we need to be a friend and listen. And your standard apologetics can easily, it seems like when you go, when you go into standard arguments for God, that easily dovetails into how the Christian worldview makes more sense, not just of everything about reality, but also can, can account for their worldview, and you can show why their worldview is false, why Christianity worldview, but why their worldview is a lie. Because you may you can give an account with Christianity for any sort of power behind that worldview, but why it's deceiving them. So I, that's actually to me that seems like it's a it's an easier bridge to cross when when uh, you're not dealing with somebody who's just a metaphysical naturalist that that you have more to talk about with pagans or witches or or, or whoever than than you have with atheists because atheists they need some sort of you know they have this functional metaphysical uh naturalism and the old tired empiricism ways of uh, thinking that you can only know something if you can put it in a bottle or something seems like christians would have an easier time evangelizing these people than they would atheists if if for nothing else that we can actually acknowledge their worldview but under but while it's simultaneously explaining why it's bogus and it's dependent upon our worldview well, and I, I agree with everything you say, brother. And that's, you know, the fact is, is that one thing you have to do too, and I've, I've, I've had encounters, say, with a, people who are into witchcraft and doing this stuff. One thing you've got to remember to do is that, look, God really does answer prayer. Mm. And one of the things that you can do for people who are in the occult is just pray, pray, pray that God will reveal to them what they're really dealing with because i have had I, I had a gal i met with one time it was a long probably 20 years ago i had an encounter it was a someone called a church and they called me in for as a consultant so i went and met with this gal who was in a hermetic witchcraft coven and she had been in it for a long time was you know was an adept at her magic and all this stuff and then she encountered something that literally you know pardon the pun, but scared the hell out of her. <laughs> and, you know, she grabbed her, her, her grimoire, her, her personal spell book, her crystal ball, her potion ingredients, her magic wand, all the real stuff that these people, she ran out of the house because she was so scared of what was happening and start dialing churches. And she got to through nine or 10 churches are saying, uh, we don't do that kind of thing. And I finally called my friend's church who called me and says, hey, you want to go talk to a witch? I said, sure, why not? So, <laughs> so we met with her and uh, she's telling us the story. But she, she became, she started out as a Christian, rejected Christianity, went to witchcraft. And then when she, you know, we, we, I talked to her for about 30, 40 minutes, she became a Christian again after that. Amen. So, so it's, um, the fact is, is that one of the best things you can do is pray that God reveals the true nature of what they're dealing with. Because then that's only then, like the people in Ephesus, you know, and frankly, you, people in Haiti, the people in the third world, the people who, you go to these places outside the United States who are steeped in paganism and, you know, a, a magical worldview, they are scared to death of the spirits. Yeah. That's why they want to know, quote, that there really is power in God. 
that God's bigger than the boogeyman, that we have authority uh, over this stuff, and they don't have to worry about, you know, the, the tree spirit killing them in the middle of the night or making their family sick. Yeah, so, uh, unfortunately, though, for a lot of, uh, you know, if you've ever, at least my background talking to foreign missions has always been the Southern Baptist Convention. And the Southern Baptist Convention missionaries, I don't know if this has changed or not, because they, they usually try to educate people on the local culture, but on a missionary level, their first instinct is to poo-poo it and debunk that magical worldview that they have, as opposed to counter it. I don't know if that's a problem in, in, elsewhere, but every time I've ever talked to an IMB missionary, uh, it seems like they have this attitude, well, that's all fake. That's all, they're just making that stuff. They don't realize that that's, there's nothing happening there. And I'm well, like, well, and I mean, I'll tell you, that's why, and I'll tell you, I mean, when you look at Pentecostal charismatic missionaries that go to these places are far more successful. And that's why you see Pentecostal charismatic churches being set up more in the third world than these other churches. Yeah. And in and, and that tradition, yeah, the, the, I don't find it there, but they take some other, I'll own it from my, those are my people, the charismatic, and yeah. they, they export a lot of other bad things yeah. too not 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 all of them but yeah. there are some of them export horrible things too that that's equally bad in different ways but one of the things you don't want if kind of a run-of-the-mill american evangelical protestantism is you don't want to export you know this this modernist modernism that we've embraced instead of a christian worldview that's a pre-modern worldview well, use those categories you don't want to ex yeah. express a borrowed naturalism from the world when we're trying to you know teach the christian worldview which is to use those tired terms yeah. uh, of natural and supernatural so we don't want to export a functional modernism you know well that's right and christianity yeah and, and and this is part of the problem too where, you know you have the waxing and waning is the fact is we're supposed to again function in word and spirit we're supposed right. to be all about truth and all about encounter with god and doing it biblically and righteously in the right way and the problem is you can get so much so much emphasis on your idea of truth and defense that you end up with this nice you know these nice 500 page books on christian doctrine but no personal encounter with God, the spirit world, or anything else. It's just right. not real. Or you get people who are all into the existential encounter and the truth goes by the wayside. What we need are both simultaneously all the time is word and spirit. I mean, we're baptized in the Holy Spirit so God can lead and guide, you know, and direct us in every way. Well, this is one of the reasons why I appreciate your work uh, as an educator and as a churchman who actually goes and talks to Wiccans whenever somebody calls and asks you to uh, involved in evangelism, because you emphasize this is where, where I think uh, many in systematic theology, uh, whether they're interested laypersons or other professors, this is where they, I think they miss it here. That, you know, to take systematic theology seriously is to understand reality as it is, as you talked about. And I think systematic theology, not just focusing on one or two chapters in the book and making that your special, but having a robust sense of systematic theology, summarizing what the Bible tells us about the world and all of these big categories, helps keep you grounded and balanced to not, not fall too, too much into superstition on the one hand, but not fall into too much... Uh, you know, functional naturalism with with Christian dressing on top, sprinkled on top. Systematic theology keeps you grounded in in the proper way of understanding the world, 
uh, and keeping those things in balance so you don't fall into these, these, these two different ditches on either side of us, right? Absolutely. And uh, you say systematics. Well, I teach systematic theology. Okay. Bottom line is you have to be first excellent at exegetical and biblical theology Amen. before you can do systematic theology. Because if you do, because all systematic theology does is look at all the, the individual parts of the Bible and try and make it one coherent whole. But if, you know, if, if people are just using tradition or whatever else, no, you, all, you get unbiblical systematic theologies in the same way you get, you get people doing bad exegetical and biblical theology because they do it out of the context of the entire scripture. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's our job, especially as the leaders and teachers, to do it humbly, to be open to correction. Uh, because look, I, I'm, I'm representing God. And I don't want God to have to correct me. <laughs> for misrepresenting him. Yeah. So well, I, say and, I believe in the inspiration authority of the Bible, you're darn straight. Yeah, we're, if we're going to, what John Frame would call exegetical theology, or if you're talking about biblical studies just as a discipline, you know, I've got to remind them when I, I hear too many people, and I, I, Lord knows 10 years ago, I was guilty of promoting this, her, this horrendous idea that, you know, one is so much above the other, right? I mean, You've had, I don't know if you remember this, you had to chide me in the comments uh, on our forums for this kind of snooty attitude. Because without systematic theology, you you know, biblical studies types of people, they'll get into the exegesis that 100% of everything they're reading only exists in the past. And we're debating, uh, we're, we're debating all of this as literary criticism and couldn't possibly care less about application, couldn't possibly care less about how that applies to doctrine. And, and I, I've said it many times, systematic the, theologians have to correct exegetes just as much as they think the exegetes need to correct, because you can fall into, you look, I don't, you can eisegete the text in Greek, you can eisegete in Hebrew, you can eisegete right. in your Korean Bible, and biblical studies people, exe, people in exegetical theology and all of that, you know, they can well, come up with some pretty creative interpretations out of whole cloth and say yeah. that they found it in the text just as much as they want to accuse systematicians of doing that. So I think, I, yep. I think that correction needs to function both ways. And I always chastise my biblical studies people that says, well, exegesis always trumps the systematic theology. Well, it depends on your exegesis because your exegesis could be garbage. So, yep. Well, yeah, that's right. Because if your particular exegesis of one passage clearly is, you know, contradicts another passage, you got it wrong, or the other passage is wrong. But you right. got to give me, you got to, you got to harmonize God's entire word, and that's why we always start with bibliology. Yeah, is because you're going to claim that God revealed this to us, and it, the source ultimately is God, and these are God's word. There will be it'll be a hundred percent true and a hundred percent harmonious. Right. So all the time, every place. So well, I'm so glad that you're you're wanting to provide and so many resources for people because I've I've actually I I remember you would post the syllabi for your classes at your Institute for uh, Theology and Law website, right? Or, I post. I have two websites. I have yeah. my uh, my Biola faculty website where I post all the the handouts, downloads, and things like that. Uh, also, I. Unfortunately, we're redoing our website for the Institute for Theology and Law. I had the last guy I had do it. He used this old Joomla template. I'm trying to get rid of it now because I have about literally a couple of thousand things I want to post on there. Yeah. Uh, 
apologetics, law, theology. I just need someone to make me a better website now. So but your faculty page is accessible to anybody, though. Yes, right? it's uh, theolaw.org, T-H-E-O-L-A-W.org, like theology and law. And you just go there and click yeah. the, you know, whatever the latest downloads page, it'll have all the syllabi downloads, handouts, and even some uh, recorded lectures for some of the classes. Uh, yeah, Institute so for Theology and Law, itlnet.org. Uh, that's got some, again, some audio video courses, uh, some other things on there as well. Yes, and it's all for free. So Theology free. Geeks, you need to, so. before you go spend another 20 bucks on more Kindle books, Go check out this, and it'll tie you up for a while. All the stuff I highly commend it to everybody. I've I've downloaded everything beyond there. I still have a file, uh, but back when I was at Biola, when I saw all this other stuff I could download, even for classes I wasn't taking, I took advantage of that. And so, uh, because you've written so much, I would have figured you'd have a book by now. But we'll we'll say yeah, it's getting the free time to do it. Uh, I hear you. I, I need about five years of sabbaticals now to get all my writing done but well if you can pull that yeah. one off brother you tell me how you did oh. it and i'll take it to my boss but well i'm uh i, I got zondervan interested in my elenctic theology books i've got uh, a couple of others if you know want me to write proposals but uh between my law practice my religious liberty practice my uh you know doing my biola teaching and jobs uh, it's, it's hard to get free time to write so yeah. But, uh, but hey, pray for me on that, because I would love to. I got about 20 books I want to write right now. So it's just getting, and then podcasts every day, and uh, obviously uh, bacon sandwiches every night. There so. you go. <laughs> now, are you still doing martial arts? Still doing martial arts, American Kempo Karate at Kellogg's right. American Kempo. I uh, got, um, yeah, I've got my brown belt. Uh, just I'm going to turn 59 in a couple of months, but they got no my way. brown belt. Got, uh, how, how do I have more gray in my beard than you? And you're about I to I don't be... know, man. So, so I but, thought you were uh, younger than that. I thought we were. Uh, yeah. could turn 59. Uh, going to go for my second degree brown belt pretty soon. So, uh, so hopefully I'll get my black belt by the time the, uh, uh, my joints and everything wear out. So <laughs> we'll see. Then I can write a book. See, there's, there's already a billion apologetics books. So writing another one, you know, uh, but I want to write one eventually called black belt apologetics. There so, you go. Yeah. See if I can get Chuck Norris's endorsement or something. <laughs> well, he's going to live forever apparently. So That's he'll be right. around by the time, by the time you ever finish it. Well, yeah. Dr. Lewis, it has been a pleasure to have you on to talk about a subject that is not talked about enough or at least not sanely. So I'm glad that we had a sane, rational conversation about a very important topic. I hope that you will come back on. Any parting words for our viewers? I just parting words is uh, it's always what I literally get up every day and I think about is uh, I, I think about is the end of the book of Revelation true? If people's names are not found written in the book of life. They're thrown into the lake of fire. Mm. And the fact is, is that I believe that. And the fact is, I do believe Jesus is the only way of salvation. And Man. it's real easy to get distracted by the world, the flesh, the devil, the cares of life and everything else. But that's why we've got to constantly have eternity in our hearts, set it before us and come back to the basics and ask yourself, do I really believe this stuff? Because mm -hmm. if you really believe heaven and hell are at stake, eternal blessedness versus eternal torment, the uniqueness of Christ for salvation, then if you believe it, act like you believe it. Amen. And I, I think that's the, and start looking at your own church, you know, do a survey. When was the last time you evangelized someone 
A lot of times it's because I mentioned, because people are, they really are uh, universalist pluralist. And the other part also is that a lot of people have fear of doing evangelism because they feel inadequate. So demand that your local church teach you something <laughs> and equip you to do the job. And if you don't know where to go, they need to go to your website and download well, the resources. There's, there's lots of good folks, but I'll tell you, you know, I'm, I'm at Biola. We're a dispensational college seminary. And yeah, there's, there will be a second coming. There'll be a rapture. There'll be all that. But guess what? Um, personal eschatology is far more important than general eschatology because every single person right now, you could have your last day today which means you could cease to be a witness to someone you need to witness to, or the person you need to evangelize, it may die today. You don't know. Right. So if you want to have, have a sense of urgency about this, you know that, I mean, after death, period, there's no second chance. So the fact is, is I, yeah, I keep up my fervency and urgency on this because I have constantly remind myself that these things are true and they have the ultimate consequences for good and, and, and for evil. So the so fact is you either believe it or you don't. So ask yourself today, do you really believe this stuff? Mm. So if you don't believe it, get out of our churches and stop ruining the churches, you know, leave your money or something and resources. <laughs> but, you know, but, you know, but that's the whole purity of the church discussion and ecclesiology, marks of a true church, marks of a true believer and all that. But ask yourself if you really, really believe this stuff. If you do, get busy. Amen. And on that, we thank you, Dr. Lewis. We hope to have you back. Talk about, well, you seem to know a lot about a lot of things, so I will come up with more topics if you're willing to come back. And we wish you the best uh, in your endeavors. I know you're busy, so keep fighting the good fight out there in the um, foreign missions field that we call California. <laughs> you got it, brother. Thanks All for right. having me on today. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.